Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 67. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how truth long it is. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Several weeks ago, we mentioned that the prequel to the Kate Nielsen series, Winds of Hope, was about to be released and that we would let you know when it became available. Well... I must admit that we sort of forgot to do that. But the good news for you e-reader owners is the book or the ebook version is already selling for a mere 99 cents on Amazon. And more good news. We should receive a proof of the paper version this week. If that looks good, you'll soon be able to order a print copy of Winds of Hope. And now that we've passed along that update, here's Steve to read the next installment from Treasure Island. Treasure Island, Chapter 19. This is narrative resumed by Jim Hawkins, The Garrison in the Stockade. As soon as Ben Gunn saw the colors, he came to a halt, stopped me by the arm, and sat down. Now, said he, There's your friends, sure enough. Far more likely it's the mutineers, I answered. That, he cried, why, in a place like this, where nobody puts in but gentlemen of fortune, silver would fly the Jolly Roger. You don't make no doubt of that. No, that's your friends. There's been blows, too, and I reckon your friends has had the best of it. And here they are ashore in the old stockade, as was made years and years ago by Flint. Ah, he was the man to have a headpiece, was Flint. Barring rum, his match were never seen. He were afraid of none, not he. Only silver. Silver was that genteel. Well, said I, that may be so, and so be it. All the more reason that I should hurry on and join my friends. Nay, mate, returned Ben. Not you. You're a good boy, or I'm mistook. But you're only a boy, all told. Now Ben Gunn is fly. Rum wouldn't bring me there, where you're going. Not rum wouldn't, till I see your born gentleman and gets it on his word of honor. And you won't forget my words. A precious sight, that's what you'll say, a precious sight more confidence, and then nips him. And he pinched me the third time with the same air of cleverness. And when Ben Gunn is wanted, you know where to find him, Jim. Just where you found him today. And him that comes is to have a white thing in his hand. And he's to come alone. Oh, and you'll say this. Ben Gunn, says you, has reasons of his own. Well, said I, I believe I understand. You have something to propose. And you wish to see the squire or the doctor. And you're to be found where I found you. Is that all? And when, says you, he added, Why, from about noon observation to about six bells. Good, said I. And now may I go? You won't forget, he inquired, 
anxiously. Precious sight and reasons of his own, says you. Reasons of his own. That's the mainstay as between man and man. Well then, still holding me, I reckon you can go, Jim. And, Jim, if you was to see silver, you wouldn't go for to sell Ben Gunn? While horses wouldn't draw it from you? No, says you. And if them pirates camp ashore, Jim, what would you say but there be widders in the morning? Here he was interrupted by a loud report, and a cannonball came tearing through the trees and pitched in the sand, not a hundred yards from where we two were talking. The next moment, each of us had taken to his heels in a different direction. For a good hour to come, frequent reports shook the island, and balls kept crashing through the woods. I moved from hiding place to hiding place, always pursued, or so it seemed to me, by these terrifying missiles. But towards the end of the bombardment, though still I durst not venture in the direction of the stockade, where the balls fell oftenest, I had begun, in a manner, to pluck up my heart again, and after a long detour to the east, crept down among the shoreside trees. The sun had just set, the sea breeze was rustling and tumbling in the woods, and ruffling the gray surface of the anchorage. The tide, too, was far out, and great tracts of sand lay uncovered. The air, after the heat of the day, chilled me through my jacket. The Hispaniola still lay where she had anchored, but sure enough, there was the Jolly Roger, the black flag of piracy, flying from her peak. Even as I looked, there came another red flash and another report that sent the echoes clattering, and one more round shot whistled through the air. It was the last of the cannonade. I lay for some time, watching the bustle which succeeded the attack. Men were demolishing something with axes on the beach near the stockade. The poor jolly boat, I afterwards discovered. Away, near the mouth of the river, a great fire was glowing among the trees, and between that point and the ship, one of the gigs kept coming and going. The men, whom I had seen so gloomy, shouting at the oars like children. But there was a sound in their voices which suggested rum. At length I thought I might return towards the stockade. I was pretty far down on the low, sandy spit that encloses the anchorage to the east, and is joined at half-water to Skeleton Island. And now, as I rose to my feet, I saw some distance further down the spit, and rising from among the low bushes, an isolated rock, pretty high and peculiarly white in color. It occurred to me that this might be the white rock of which Ben Gunn had spoken, and that some day or other a boat might be wanted, and I should know where to look for one. Then I skirted among the woods until I had regained the rear, or shoreward side, of the stockade, and was soon warmly welcomed by the faithful party. I had soon told my story and begun to look about me. The log house was made of unsquared trunks of pine, roof, walls, and floor. The latter stood in several places as much as a foot or a foot and a half above the surface of the sand. There was a porch at the door, and under this porch the little spring welled up into an artificial basin of a rather odd kind, no other than a great ship's kettle of iron, with the bottom knocked out, and sunk to her bearings, as the captain said, among the sand. 
Little had been left beside the framework of the house. But in one corner there was a stone slab laid down by way of hearth and an old rusty iron basket to contain the fire. The slopes of the knoll and all the inside of the stockade had been cleared of timber to build the house, and we could see by the stumps that a fine and lofty grove had been destroyed. Most of the soil had been washed away or buried in drift after the removal of the trees. Only where the streamlet ran down from the kettle, a thick bed of moss and some ferns and little creeping bushes were still green among the sand. Very close around the stockade, too close for defense, they said, the wood still flourished high and dense, all of fir on the land side, but towards the sea with a large admixture of live oaks. The cold evening breeze, of which I have spoken, whistled through every chink of the rude building, and sprinkled the floor with a continual rain of fine sand. There was sand in our eyes, sand in our teeth, sand in our suppers, sand dancing in the spring at the bottom of the kettle, for all the world like porridge beginning to boil. Our chimney was a square hole in the roof. It was but a little part of the smoke that found its way out, and the rest eddied about the house and kept us coughing and piping the eye. Add to this that Gray, the new man, had his face tied up in a bandage for a cut he had got in breaking away from the mutineers. And that poor old Tom Redruth, still unburied, lay along the wall, stiff and stark, under the Union Jack. If we had been allowed to sit idle, we should have all fallen in the blues. But Captain Smollett was never the man for that. All hands were called up before him, and he divided us into watches. The doctor and Gray and I, for one. The squire, Hunter, and Joyce, upon the other. Tired though we all were, two were sent out for firewood. Two more were set to dig a grave for Redruth. The doctor was named Cook. I was put sentry at the door, and the captain himself went from one to another, keeping up our spirits and lending a hand wherever it was wanted. From time to time the doctor came to the door for a little air and to rest his eyes, which were almost smoked out of his head, and whenever he did so, he had a word for me. That man Smollett, he said once, is a better man than I am. And when I say that, it means a deal, Jim. Another time he came and was silent for a while. Then he put his head on one side and looked at me. Is this Ben Gunn a man? he asked. I do not know, sir, said I. I am not very sure whether he's sane. If there's any doubt about the matter, he is, returned the doctor. A man who has been three years biting his nails on a desert island, Jim, can't expect to appear as sane as you or me. It doesn't lie in human nature. Was it cheese you said he had a fancy for? Yes, sir, cheese, I answered. Well, Jim, says he, just see the good that comes of being dainty in your food. You've seen my snuff box, haven't you? And you never saw me take snuff. The reason being that in my snuff box I carry a piece of Parmesan cheese, a cheese made in Italy, very nutritious. Well, that's for Ben Gunn. Before supper was eaten, we buried old Tom in the sand and stood round him for a while, bareheaded in the breeze. A good deal of firewood had been got in, but not enough for the captain's fancy, 
and he shook his head over it and told us we must get back to this tomorrow rather livelier. Then, when we had eaten our pork and each had a good stiff glass of brandy grog, the three chiefs got together in a corner to discuss our prospects. It appears they were at their wit's end what to do. The stores being so low that we must have been starved into a surrender long before help came. But our best hope, it was decided, was to kill off the buccaneers until they either hauled down their flag or ran away with the Hispaniola. From 19, they were already reduced to 15. Two others were wounded, and one at least, the man shot beside the gun, severely wounded, if he were not dead. Every time we had a crack at them, we were to take it, saving our own lives with the extremest care. And besides that, we had two able allies, rum and the climate. As for the first, though we were about half a mile away, we could hear them roaring and singing late into the night. And as for the second, the doctor staked his wig that camped where they were in the marsh and unprovided with remedies, the half of them would be on their backs before a week. So, he added, if we are not all shot down first, they'll be glad to be packing in the schooner. It's always a ship, and they can get to buccaneering again, I suppose. First ship that I ever lost, said Captain Smollin. I was dead tired, as you may fancy, and when I got to sleep, which was not till after a great deal of tossing, I slept like a log of wood. The rest had long been up, and had already breakfasted and increased the pile of firewood by about half as much again, when I was wakened by a bustle and the sound of voices. Flag of truce, I heard someone say, and then, immediately after, with a cry of surprise, Silver himself! And at that, up I jumped, and rubbing my eyes, ran to a loophole in the wall. Today I'm reading from chapter 18 of Winds of Wyoming. In chapter 17, the heroine, Kate Nielsen, was thrown from a horse and ended up in the hospital. So that's where she's at, at the beginning of chapter 18. Kate picked up the telephone handset. Hello? Hi, Kate. This is Laura. How are you feeling today? Kate grinned at the sound of Mrs. D.'s cheerful voice. Good, thank you. I sat in a wheelchair for breakfast and didn't even get dizzy. Wonderful, Laura said. You sound better, thank God. You didn't know how much I would need your prayers when you promised to pray for me, did you? I pray for you every day. Laura said Monday night we were all on our knees, including the Curtis twins. They're sweethearts. Yes, they are, and like you, they're part of our Whispering Pines family. Whoops, I hear the front desk bell. Hang on, Mike wants to talk with you. See you soon. Kate was touched by Laura's inclusion of her in the WP family, but she knew it wouldn't last. As much as she would like to be part of the Duncan family, she didn't belong with such good people. She heard muffled noises before Mike came on the line. Hey, Kate. Hi, Mike. How's life with the buffalo roam? Oh, they better not be roaming. She giggled. Figure of speech. To be honest, he said, it's lonely without you. 
Surprised by his comment, she wasn't sure what to say. Tears welled in her eyes. She sniffed. I miss you, too. She sniffed again and wiped at her nose. Don't be sad. I'm not sad, just weepy since the accident. I miss everyone at the ranch. I've had visitors, but it's not the same as being there. Mom and I are planning to drop by this afternoon, Mike said. Kate smiled. She couldn't wait to see him again. I'd love to see you both if you can get away. How's your dog doing? He made a sound halfway between a sigh and a moan. Tramp had a setback. Scared us bad. I took him to the clinic and encampment. He'll have to stay there until he recovers or... You mean he might... She heard him blow a puff of air. Uh, yeah. I'm so sorry. I'll pray for him. He's a huge part of your life. Oh, Dimple says God puts us on our backs so we'll look up to him, Mike said. With all that's gone on lately, it must be time for me to do some serious uplooking. I guess that goes for me, too, he chuckled. I forgot. You're literally on your back. How you doing today? Great. I sat in a wheelchair for breakfast. I'm glad to hear it. You'll be walking by the time we get there this afternoon. I wish. I hate to go, Kate, he said, but I better get busy. Take care of yourself, okay? I'll try. See you later. Bye. Kate laid the phone on the nightstand and plumped her pillow. She didn't know if it was a crazy night on the mountain or the meds, but she was sleepy. After a nap, she would comb her hair, so she looked nice for Mike. Oh, and for Laura. Mike hung up the telephone and headed for the barn. It felt wrong to walk the ranch grounds without Tramp at his heels. He passed Trudy's little corner of the world shaded by a big cottonwood. The calf slept soundly on a pile of straw. By the time Tramp could play with Trudy again, if that day ever came, the calf would be too big and too strong for him. Mike stepped inside the cool, dark barn. Where did he leave off? Every time he started to project something. Usually something bad distracted him. ATV tracks, a cut fence, a dented truck, a dead buffalo. Plus a guy who broke into Kate's cabin. Now Kate and Tramp were hospitalized. What else could go wrong? Other than Tara Hughes, she was over the top. A scream broke into his reverie. Help! Somebody help! He raced out of the barn toward the sound of sobs and found Bethany huddled in the corner of the corral. He leaped over the railing. What's the matter? Tears poured down her cheeks. She pointed to the calf with the bottle she held in her hand. Look! She gagged. He leaned closer and saw a deep gash across Trudy's throat. Bile rose in his own throat. He put his arm around the teenager. When I walked by a moment ago, I thought she was asleep. She choked on a sob. Mrs. D asked me to feed her, but she buried her face in his shoulder. Others who'd heard the scream gathered round the corral. Who would do such a horrible thing? Bethany wailed and clutched at his shirt. One of the guests, a man, stepped to the railing. Some sicko, that's who. Mike wondered if it was the same sicko who killed his, the mother cow. Probably that Mexican kid, said another man. I heard he spent time in the pen for animal cruelty. Has it in for our furry friends. You better believe it. This time it was Daryl's voice, tinged with bitterness as usual. 
Mike bit back his anger and helped Bethany to her feet. He turned to the crowd, staring straight at Daryl. That's the kind of talking that leads to lynchings. The sheriff will investigate, and he will decide who the culprit is. Daryl rolled his eyes and strode away. Mike spotted Tanner at the back of the crowd and motioned to him. Get a tarp from the storeroom to cover the carcass. I'll call the sheriff. He looked at Bethany. You okay? She nodded. He led her out of the enclosure, closing the gate behind them. Tricia ran up to them. I just heard what happened. She pulled Bethany into a hug. Mike trudged toward the house, dreading the moment he had to tell his mom about the calf. Just beyond the corral, he stopped. How was he going to tell Kate her calf was dead? Tanner jogged to his side. Hey, boss man, I don't know if it's related, but I saw Manuel doing something strange a few days ago. Mike winced. He hated to be called boss man, the name the employees had used for his dad for as long as he could remember. He didn't begin to feel worthy to walk in his father's boots. What do you mean, something strange? His response came out sharper than he planned. He liked Manuel. Plus, he didn't want to think his mom made a judgment error in hiring him the moment he checked out of reform school. Tanner backstepped, hands up. Sorry, I mentioned it. Wait, Mike said. Let's talk in the gazebo. They walked the path through the newly planted garden. Inside the gazebo, Mike faced the ranch hand. Shoot. Tanner adjusted his hat. I was working on the plumbing in the cabin next to the Blue Jay the afternoon it rained so hard, and I happened to look out the window. Manuel and Kate were standing in the rain beside her cabin, talking. Mike frowned. Kate and Manuel up to no good? Not hardly. Manuel was holding a shovel, like this. Tanner demonstrated how he'd held the shovel parallel with the ground. Looked like something heavy was on it, but I couldn't tell what it was. Rain was coming down hard right then. He showed Kate whatever it was on the shovel. Then they walked to the back of the cabin, sort of sneaky-like, looking every direction. Manuel dumped the load onto the ground, maybe into a hole. Then he covered it with dirt. About as soon as he finished, they took off in opposite directions. Tanner shrugged his shoulders. That's about it. Nothing much, really. Mike grabbed one of the shovels, leaning against the gazebo bench. Let's check it out. As they made their way through the garden, he glanced toward the corral. An even larger crowd had formed. He made a mental note to call the sheriff as soon as he uncovered whatever Manuel buried. What was it about the blue jay? Was the cabin jinxed? Or was it Kate? He shook his head, mentally kicking himself for doubting her. He didn't know Kate well, but his heart told him she wasn't the problem. They found a soft dirt pile under a lilac bush. Mike scraped off the top layer, Tanner offered to dig, but Mike refused. He scratched and poked until he felt something soft give under the shovel. Then he tapped around the, until he came to the hardened edges of the hole. His boot on the blade, he forced the metal lip into the soil and levered a muddy mass from the hole. Tanner stooped to examine it. He rubbed at the dirty surface, surface with a stick. What do you know? It's a snake. Bull snake, I'd say. Mike knelt beside him. I wonder where they found the snake, he thought for a moment. Maybe Kate saw it and Manuel killed it for her. Tanner nodded. Maybe. At least they buried it. Whoever threw that dead ferret in the dumpster didn't do us any favors. Stunk it up ten times worse than usual. You saw a ferret in the dumpster, Mike said. Yeah, a black-footed ferret. 
Are you sure? I thought they were nearly extinct. I saw a special about endangered species on public television a few months back. This ferret looked the same as those on TV, like a long, skinny weasel with black feet and a black mask. The narrator said they normally live on the prairie, but some have been found at higher elevations. Mike stared at the snake, thinking about the ferret. So, how did it get in our dumpster? Is it still there? Who knows how it got there, Tanner said, but it's gone. The sanitation guys came by yesterday. The smell is probably still there if you want to take a whiff, but be warmed, he grimaced. It's mighty powerful. Mike lowered the shovel back into the hole and wiggled the blade out from under the snake carcass. Do me a favor, Tanner, and keep this to yourself. He spread dirt over the top. We don't want to scare off the guests. The dead calf is bad enough. Tanner nodded. Gotcha. I'll take the shovel back to the gazebo. Mike tamped the soil before handing him the shovel. What made you look in the dumpster? One of the girls dropped a bag of trash in when I walked by and started gagging. She wouldn't look, but I got curious, held my nose, and lifted the lid. The ferret was right on top of some garbage bags. Looked smashed. Maybe roadkill. Oh, great, Mike thought. Somebody had run over an animal on the endangered species list and left it on their property. That would make for front-page news. Maybe a big fine or even prison time. Tanner turned to go. Let me know what the sheriff, when the sheriff is done with the calf, so I can bury it. She'll get to smell and ripe in no time, same as that weasel. Mike watched Tanner walk away. He needed to call the sheriff about the calf and radio Clint to ask him to check the bison herd, and the cattle, and the horses, in case the killer had visited the other pastures. What was with it with dead animals lately? Was God punishing him for Matt's death? But he told God a thousand times he was sorry. What more did he want? Bernard Caldwell, the deputy who answered Mike's call about the downed bison cow, aimed a camera at the calf's body. You've had a run of bad luck with your buffalo lately. I don't know that luck has anything to do with it, Bernie. Looks intentional to me. A bullet to the heart and a knife to the throat are no accidents. Name's Bernard. Deputy Bernard Caldwell. You think someone has it out for you? I don't know of any enemies, Mike said, but something strange is going on around here. The deputy stepped closer to the dead calf and got down on one knee. How's business since your dad died? Mike stared at the deputy. He'd played sports with Bernie in high school, back before he became Deputy Bernard Caldwell, but they'd never been close friends. Now he remembered why. Bernie had always carried a chip on his shoulder and had made it known around school how much he resented the fact that Mike got to play in the state basketball tournament their junior and senior years, but he didn't. The camera clicked once more. Bernard pocketed the camera and stood. He returned Mike's gaze. Well, are you suggesting I killed my own buffalo, Mike said. I just asked how the ranch is doing without your dad. We're doing fine, operating in the black as always. I hear you're set up for bison hunts this summer. We are, Mike said, but that doesn't mean I'm dumb enough to kill my own animals at zero profit, plus go through the hassle of dealing with you guys in the insurance company, which is always trying hard to draw the wrong conclusions. 
Just doing my job, Bernie said. Do your tax-paid job and find the person who's killing my animals. These things take time. Doesn't seem to take you much time to jump to conclusions. Caldwell grunted and made a notation on the form in his clipboard. Mike's radio crackled. Mike, are you there? He lifted the two-way from his belt and pushed a button. This is Mike. Is the deputy still on the ranch? The distraught voice was his mom's. Yes. Can you bring him to the office right away? David Roper wrote this one-pager he calls Home Sweet Home. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. That's from Psalm 49. A few years ago, Carolyn and I bought two lots at Dry Creek Cemetery, a windswept hill overlooking the city of Boise. One for me and one for her. Mine is about four feet wide and eight feet long, 32 square feet in all. I lay down on it, much to Carolyn's chagrin, to see if I fit. I did, just barely. Some people acquire vast estates and some have continents named after them. Folks like Amerigo Vespucci. But the only piece of real estate any of us will ever truly own is our grave. Not much to show for a lifetime of effort. That's the problem with a this-world perspective. No matter what you acquire or accomplish in this life, you can't take it with you. As Israel's poet put it, you die and leave everything to others. This calls for understanding, an insight, a perspective on reality. There is another dimension of reality, an unseen realm in which earthly notions of the good life are irrelevant. This present world is tangible but transient. The unseen world is forever and ever. It's toward that invisible, eternal realm that our predominant thoughts, time, and energy ought to go. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said. I'm reminded of a story I heard years ago about a stockbroker who encountered a genie and given the requisite wish. A copy of the Wall Street Journal one year hence, the man replied. Thereupon, paper in hand, he turned to the market report for that day, anticipating a killing. But his eye fell first on his picture on the opposite page, accompanied by his obituary. The killing he anticipated was his own. Continuing with thoughts about life and death, as we approach Good Friday and Easter, Patricia Deal's story from The Women Who Knew Him, Stories of Jesus' Earthly Ministry to Women, helps us focus on resurrection power. This particular chapter is titled Two Sisters. Martha's eyes shot open the second before Rastus, the rooster, began to crow. As her feet hit the floor, her brain began to whir. So many tasks to finish. The meal for Jesus must be a flawless event. Just because her family had known his family for years made no difference. Any guests coming to Martha's house would be treated in a kingly or queenly manner. 
She remembered the first Passover she, little Lazarus, and her baby sister Mary met Jesus and his family. The children of both families were playing in the marketplace where their mothers were buying food for the day. Jesus was helping his mother corral two small brothers, and Martha was given the same task of watching Mary and Lazarus. Her brother had been playing with his top when a passerby accidentally kicked it, sending it flying into the street. Lazarus was intent on retrieving his toy and did not see the Roman soldier on horseback close by, pushing his way through the crowd of people. Jesus spotted the danger and ran out to scoop up the little boy before he could be trampled. A thankful big sister, as well as mother, poured out their gratitude to the young boy who had saved their little one. Lazarus idolized his Savior, and the older boy returned his love. So the families reunited each time Joseph and Mary's family traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. The years had passed with the parents of the Bethany family, as well as Joseph dying. But the friendship among the children continued on into adulthood and was magnified as Jesus, their childhood friend, became Jesus, their teacher. Their friend, their teacher, was coming for a meal, the reason behind Martha's present preparation frenzy. Mary, wake up. There's much to do. Martha bustled to the hearth, stirring up the flame to begin the cooking chores for the day. She could picture Mary reveling in the textures of a new day, for she had awakened in that manner from childhood. Mary reminded Martha of a cat stretching after rousing from a nap in the warm sun. She sometimes felt a bit wistful of Mary's contemplative nature. But would she not be wasting time if she behaved in the same fashion? Martha called again. Mary, would you please come and start mixing the bread while I get this mutton ready to cook? The meat must be tender, and the seasonings permeated throughout. That all takes time, you know. Sister, slow down, came Mary's calming voice. You have not even broken your fast from the night, and here you are, scurrying around like our guests will arrive in the next moment. I just want everything to be perfect for Jesus and his friends, Mary said. I know, and you will serve a wonderful meal. But first, let us eat a bit. I think that is a wonderful idea, agreed Lazarus in his reedy voice. He was always hungry, but never carried an extra ounce of flesh on his frame. He had been a sickly child, but thankfully had grown out of that trait as an adult. While the family ate their breakfast, they discussed the meal they would be serving. Or at least Martha did. Lazarus and Mary interjected comments about who would be accompanying Jesus and what portion of Scripture he might be teaching them. Upon hearing Mary's comments, Martha arched an eyebrow in disgust. That girl is forever listening to the men instead of working in the kitchen. Mary, the baby of the family, had been particularly spoiled by their father, who taught her to read and encouraged her artistic talents. That type of freedom continued with her beloved brother, so Lazarus thought nothing of Mary's remarks. The hours seemed to evaporate as Martha checked the tenderness of the meat, the progress of the bread in the oven, and made sure there was an ample supply of olives, cheese, and fruit to round out the meal. Mary swept floors, arranged tables and pillows in easy conversational groupings, and found some late-blooming flowers to intersperse with a bunch of colorful, mini-textured grasses. She arranged them in pots she had fashioned and placed in eye-catching spots around the main living area. Martha heard a knock at the door and urged Lazarus to open it and greet their guests. Jesus and twelve of his closest disciples were standing on the threshold. Lazarus called to Joseph, their house servant, who fetched an earthenware bowl, one of Mary's creations, 
to wash the feet of the visitors, starting with those of Jesus. Then the men settled themselves comfortably upon the goose-down cushions Martha had sewn. One of the disciples, Matthew, asked Jesus to expound further on the topic of concern over daily needs. Teacher, I find myself still worrying about where the next meal is coming from and whether the next turn in the path conceals a bandit seeking my purse or my life. Martha knew of Matthew's background as a tax collector. His past life had revolved around material possession, so his question made perfect sense to her. Jesus answered, Remember the example of the birds of the air? They do not plant, harvest, or store crops in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than a bird? Mary settled onto a cushion next to Lazarus, directly in front of Jesus, eyes intent on his face as she listened to him teach. He continued, Can any of you add a single hour to your life by worrying? At that moment, Martha emerged from the kitchen area, directing an exasperated look at Mary. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. She heard one or two of the men snicker. She had seen these same men send unfriendly looks toward Mary when she sat down with them. Martha knew several wealthy men helped finance Jesus' travel expenses and were often included in his teaching sessions to the Twelve. Perhaps these disapproving disciples wished to snub Mary because she had not paid for her right to listen. At first, Martha felt vindicated by the men's displeasure. Then she began to feel guilty for demanding that Jesus settle a family dispute. My dear Martha, replied Jesus in a patient, kind manner, I know you are worried about all these men you are preparing to feed, but there is actually a more important need. He smiled. Calm yourself, and we will all help ready the meal when it is time. In fact, you can give a task to each one of us. She caught a twinkle in his eyes and felt her tension begin to recede. Mary has chosen to listen to my teachings about the life my Father in Heaven wishes to give all who follow me. Understanding Him and His love for you is more lasting than even one of your delicious meals. Come, join us, and we will soon be ready to eat. Martha sniffed at the almost rebuke but edged Mary over on her cushion. She listened closely as Jesus finished His teaching on the all-encompassing care of the Father toward His children. Your heavenly Father knows that you need food and clothing. Do not worry about tomorrow, for He will supply what you need. Martha relaxed, secure in the knowledge she had done her best and the day would finish well. True to His word, Jesus marshaled His men to help Martha, despite their good-natured grumbling. The food was set out, the cushions rearranged, and everyone was served. Conversation rose and fell comfortably as they all ate their fill. Your roast mutton has a delectable flavor, stated Nathaniel. Philip poked him in the ribs and laughed. Thus speaks the man who has tasted much, for Nathaniel loved to eat. Martha was gratified by additional compliments as Jesus and his friends also thanked Lazarus and Mary for the hospitality offered to them. The door closed behind the group and Mary sank onto a cushion. Martha, that stew was absolutely delicious. The meat almost melted in my mouth. Martha smiled and admitted she had learned something that day. To think that I should never worry over a company meal again is more than I can imagine. You have raised the trade of worrying to a fine art, teased Lazarus, but we do love to eat your cooking.
A few months later, Lazarus, who had always had a tendency toward a weak chest, became ill and quickly experienced great trouble breathing. Nothing that Martha could think of seemed to ease his congestion. The two sisters even discussed calling in the village healer to bleed Lazarus. However, his breathing became so labored by the second day of his illness that Martha decided they needed Jesus. As Mary watched over her brother, Martha called for Joseph. Please take a message to Jesus urging him to come heal your master, just as he did our uncle Simon. How will I know where to find him? Joseph asked. The last time Jesus and the twelve came by here, Peter told me the religious rulers were ready to stone Jesus in Jerusalem for his declaration of being one with God the Father. Consequently, they intended to head toward the Jordan River. Peter said they planned to stop in Jericho to visit the house of Zacchaeus. Go there now, and he will be able to tell you how to find Jesus. Not long after Martha had dispatched Joseph to tell Jesus about their dilemma, Lazarus breathed his last tortured gasp. The sisters prepared their beloved brother's body for burial in the family tomb, murmuring sadly, If only Jesus had come in time, he could have saved Lazarus. They were somewhat mystified that there had been no return word from him. One of the neighbors sent a message to mutual friends in Jerusalem, some of whom were professional mourners. They arrived within the day, and soon the house was filled with sounds of wailing and mournful flute music. Lazarus' body, wrapped mummy-like, was placed in the tomb, and a stone rolled across the cave tomb's opening to keep out animals and contain the odor of decay. Lazarus had been dead four days when a family friend traveling from Bethany glimpsed Jesus and his disciples, as well as Joseph walking toward the village. The friend sent word to the sisters. Martha was scrubbing her kitchen floor, not because it was dirty, but because she needed a way to vent her grief. When she got the news, she called, Mary! I'm going to go meet Jesus. Without waiting to see if her sister was following, she left her scrub brush and hurried up the road out of town. Within minutes, she met Jesus and his disciples. Running to him, she grabbed at his sleeve. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sobbing, she wiped her eyes and struggled to regain her composure. Finally, she was able to continue. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus smiled at her and in a loving voice said, Your brother will rise again. Martha, devout Jew that she was, answered somewhat glibly, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus' reply to her statement was an earth-shaking proclamation of who he really was. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live forever spiritually even though he dies physically. Do you believe me, Martha? She gazed at him for a moment before nodding her head. Yes, Lord, I do believe. You are the Christ, the Son of God. In those few minutes, her grief changed to a secure certainty, a certainty she sensed with a calm serenity she had never before experienced. Somehow, She knew she would see Lazarus before the day was done, and he would be in perfect health. Jesus asked, Martha, where is Mary? I rushed out the door the moment I heard you were on your way here. She must still be home mourning with those who have come to share our grief. I will bring her to you, Lord. Martha called Mary's name as soon as she stepped back into the house. Her sister had been doing exactly as Martha had explained to Jesus, mourning with her friends. Mary, 
Jesus is nearing our village, and he's asking for you. Mary quickly arose from her stool, wiped her eyes, straightened her robes, and left the house with Martha. The other mourners followed the two women, thinking they were going to mourn at Lazarus's tomb. Instead, they were led straight to Jesus, who had remained where he was when Martha first met him. When Mary saw Jesus, she ran to him, weeping, and threw herself at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He placed his hands on her head. Martha saw his jaw muscles tense as he gazed at her sister and saw their friends weeping for Lazarus. Where have you put Lazarus' body? he asked in a low tone. Follow me to the tomb, Martha replied. The sound of wailing escalated as the group made their way to the tomb. Great gasps of sorrow came from Jesus. Those from Jerusalem, mostly professional mourners, marveled at the obvious extent of his love for Lazarus. However, a few muttered, One would think a healer of the blind could have kept his own friend from dying. When the cave tomb came into sight, Jesus' chest heaved with a sob. But then he commanded, Take the stone away from the entrance. Martha looked at him, horrified. Lord, the odor would be unspeakable. My brother has been in the tomb for four days. Jesus said, Did I not say you would see God's glory if you believed? He directed two of the men to muscle the stone away from the tomb entrance. As they moved the stone, Jesus raised his arms toward heaven and prayed, Thank you, Father, for always hearing me. It is for the benefit of these people that I say this, so they may believe you sent me. He finished his prayer, then shouted, Lazarus, come forth! For a moment, all was still. Then a rustling, shuffling sound came from inside the tomb. Seconds later, a shape appeared at the opening. The onlookers gasped. Take off the grave clothes so he can move and breathe, commanded Jesus. Lazarus' body was still wrapped with the strips of linen his sisters had placed around him. A cloth covered his face. Mary and Martha ran to their brother, tugging at the burial clothes, crying with joy and hugging him. Turning back to Jesus, all three chorused, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Their friends joined them, praising God and shouting with elation. One townsman later described his emotions to Martha. My heart was so full of joy, I felt it might burst. I was so happy. Such exuberance had never before been experienced at a Bethany gravesite. We'll end with this poem by W.C. Doan. We are too selfish about death. We count our grief far more than we consider their relief when the great reaper gathers in the sheaf. No more to know the season's constant change. And we forget that it means only life. Life with all rest, peace, joy, and glory rife. The victory won and ended all the strife heaven no longer far away or strange. We appreciate your joining us. Until next time, happy reading. 
Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.